We want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 1. Micah 1, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16. That's tucked away in the middle of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. If you're using the blue pew Bibles, you can find that on page 776. The sermon title for this morning is An Incurable Wound. And the key words for our worshipers in training are naked inhabitant, and exile. Today we are continuing our series through the book of Micah, which we began last week. It is our practice here uh, at Redeemer Baptist Church to preach regularly through books of the Bible. And so last week we began in Micah 1.1. And we, we noted that the general uh, course through this book would cover Uh, a number of themes, but two very particular ones. Judgment for sin and salvation by grace. And these two themes uh, are repeated in three cycles throughout the book. Cycle 1 begins in chapter 1, verse 2, and ends in chapter 2, 13. Cycle 2 begins with 3, 1 and ends with 5, 15. And cycle 3 begins in 6, 1 and ends with 7, 20. And each section uh, is marked off with the word here at the very beginning. This is a call from the prophet Micah to his readers, his audience, and ultimately to us to hear, to listen to the word of God that came to Micah. We noted last week in 1-1 that Micah prophesied during the reigns of three kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So this places him about 740 years before the birth of Christ and before the Assyrian army's invasion of the ten northern tribes of Israel, or Jacob in 722, and before the Babylonian army's invasion of the two southern tribes in Israel Judah in 586. Both of those uh, military conquests serve as major fulfillments of the destruction prophesied in this book. And so it's important to have at least some bearing of what they were and, and when they occurred. Last week in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 1, we saw Micah's prophecy against Samaria, the capital city of the ten northern tribes. This prophecy, we noted, uh, was brought about uh, in fruition by the year 722 when Assyria did come and lay waste to Samaria, killing many, carrying off nearly 30,000 Israelites into captivity. In our passage this morning, we are going to consider the other object of wrath that Micah mentions is concerned with his prophecy that is Jerusalem. In one one, he says he sees this concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. They were the capital cities, the representatives of their respective nations, Israel and Judah. And uh, I want to note here that last week we said that after Assyria conquers Samaria, the ten northern tribes, they turn their sight on Jerusalem and Judah. The commander of the Assyrian army did march against Judah and conquered much of it, but was turned away by the angel of the Lord at the gates of Jerusalem when King Hezekiah repented. 
And so most of what we will consider in this passage this morning actually did come to pass at the hands of the Assyrian army by about 701 B.C., but the prophecy particularly at the end of the chapter in verse 16 against Jerusalem occurred much later in 586 with the Babylonians. So let me read this passage and we will work it out, beginning in verse 8. Micah 1, verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Laafra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, but disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzeb shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adjulam. Make yourself, yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Well, that's a mouthful there. And as we look at this passage, I want to notice three things. Make three observations from these verses. In verses 8 to 9, I want you to notice that Christians or true gospel preachers do not relish telling people that they are under judgment. In verses 10 to 15, we will see some uh, serious Hebrew wordplay that teaches us that it is vital for your identity to be firmly rooted in Christ and not of the things of this world. And in verse 16, we will see that we ought to mourn the immediate and the long-term consequences of sin. So we'll see that true gospel preachers don't relish telling people that they are under judgment. We'll see that we must keep our identity firmly rooted in Christ. And we will see that we need to mourn the consequences of sin. First then, in verses 8-9, to gospel preachers don't relish the opportunity to tell people that they are doomed. Micah says that he will lament... And wail for this. He will go stripped and naked and make mourning and lamentation like the creatures of the wilderness. Why? It is because Samaria's wound, which is incurable, he says, has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of Jerusalem. The sins of Samaria have not infected her alone, but they have 
polluted Jerusalem as well. If you spend any time reading First uh, and Second Kings in your Old Testaments, you know that the kings of Israel, the northern tribe, across the board are wicked, and they did what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right in God's eyes. The kings of Judah, while there were still many, many terrible, evil, wicked kings to rule from Jerusalem, there is a, a thin thread of righteousness that seems to run through the line of these kings until at least right before the Babylonian invasion. But Micah sees the writing on the wall long before Babylon even comes on the scene. The, the terminal disease of sin, idolatry, and rebellion that so plagued and killed the northern tribes would eventually take the life of the southern kingdom as well. But look how he frames his proclamation of this impending judgment. Is he giddy? Is he elated to make these proclamations of hellfire and brimstone, as it were? No. He is lamenting. He is wailing. Either metaphorically or perhaps literally walking around stripped and naked to convey his sorrow. This deadly disease, he says, has reached the gate of his people whom he loves. We know that judgment literally reached the gate of Jerusalem. In 701, as I mentioned, the commander of the Syrian army came, and he came up right up to the gate, but was thwarted. But then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar blew right through the gate and flattened the city. And Micah sees this coming and he mourns. We should take heed. As we look to perhaps what many could call a declining culture around us, true gospel preachers don't relish hellfire and brimstone. I am gravely concerned when I see pastors seemingly beaming with joy and delight when they preach on judgment and hell. Yes, we see the greatness of God in the display of His, judge, His, uh, His justice, even in the damnation of the wicked. But it ought to be a sobering display for us. We can glorify God in His justice without endless pleasure that some men seem to have preaching on hell. The judgment of God ought not to be taken lightly. The judgment and exile of the wicked is not something to delight in. As a thing in itself, we can and we should delight in the justice of God. But we should also sorrow and languish that anyone would go to hell. My friends, I am sure that in a room this size, some of you in here right now are on your way to hell. We are all living on the edge of eternity. We have all been infected with this incurable wound, sin, and it is going to kill each and every one of us. 
unless we die before it gets the chance. Here's the good news. Every one of us is going to die. And we will die in one of two ways. You will either die as a sinner and die by the the very sin that you loved and cherished and aided and abetted your whole life. Or you will die through union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You will die with Him as He died on the cross. Your sin will either swallow you whole or it will have been swallowed whole by Christ on the cross. Which shall it be? If you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, your life for His, His life for yours, do you know that you can do that right now? In the silence or the screaming of your heart, you can run to Jesus Christ and He will have you. He will embrace you. He will forgive you. He will redeem you. He will cleanse you. He will sanctify you. He will justify you. He will glorify you. He will welcome you into His kingdom and into the family of God. So go. Don't wait because you never know when the axe will fall. But there is hope. We're still here. We're still breathing. Jesus became the incurable wound on your behalf. Jesus was made sin so that sinners like you and like me could be healed. It is an incurable wound. You can't fix it. You can't medicate it with alcohol or sex or work or kids or friends or money or wisdom or wickedness or righteousness. At least not your own righteousness. But if you die, die to self, die to self-love, and die with Christ through faith in His life, death, and resurrection, you can be saved. Because you will be raised. Death doesn't have the final say over you because it didn't have the final say over Christ. Death could not hold Him. And if your faith is in Christ, it cannot hold you either. And so we see the severity of judgment. And we see the the, the mourning that it ought to produce in us. But there's hope. Let's turn secondly to verses 10 to 15, where we will consider identity. Is it in the world or is it in Christ? As I mentioned in these verses, there, there is some, some wordplay that Micah does that... Uh, if you don't know Hebrew or aren't familiar with a lot of these cities in the ancient Near East, it's uh, pretty much impossible to tell. <clears throat> and so I will make the explanation as brief and as clear and as quick as I can. So 10 through 15, Micah is he's proclaiming judgment against these Judean strongholds. So, these cities in Judah at the time. And he does so with some, some wordplay. So, you'll see what I mean in a second. Verse 10. Micah says, Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. Instead, roll yourselves in the dust, beth la afra which means town of dust. 
But the first line, even before we get to the town of dust, the first line in the lament is actually a reference to King David's lament in 2 Samuel chapter 1 after he hears of the death of King Saul, Israel's first king. Saul had died in battle, and when David hears of it, he sings, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Gath was a town in Judah that was Philistine-occupied. If you are familiar with the giant Goliath, whom David slays in 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is from Gath. The Philistines, uh, for much of Israelite history, were a major force for evil against the people of God. So Micah, again displaying the somber reality of the situation facing Judah, he says... Just as David warned against proclaiming the defeat of Israel in the streets of the pagan city Gath, so too it ought not be proclaimed in the city of God's enemies now. For the pagans to gloat in Israel's defeat mocks God and misunderstands and misinterprets history. The call then is not to sing it loud in the streets of the pagan city, but for the city of God to lament Bethlehaphra, then the town of dust, should roll about in the dust. He goes on in verse 11 Shafir, beauty town, is to go on its way in nakedness and shame and embarrassment. Za'anan, the going forth town, is told, Don't come out, stay put, do not go forth. Bethezel, the house of taking away, shall have its standing place, its protection to Judah, taken away. Maroth, bitter town, was to wait anxiously for something good or sweet, something that would never come. The town of Lachish is told to harness harness the steeds to the chariots. Lachish sounds like a Hebrew word for horses and was one of the chariot cities built by Solomon and fortified by Rehoboam. Next to Jerusalem, Lachish was the most prominent city in the southern kingdom. Lachish had become an important military stronghold for Judah. So important that they, like Israel in the north, had come to rely on military power over and against the Lord. And for this sin, the daughter of Zion would have to give away parting gifts, Micah says, or literally a dowry to the bride. Morasheth here sounds... Uh, similar to a Hebrew word for bride. He goes on, the houses or the, the fleece workshops of Akzib, once taxable property to the kings of Judah, now belonged in enemy hands. Those who, as we will see in chapter two, chapter 3, verse 2, uh, they tore the skin off the people. They shall have their skin torn or fleeced by the Assyrian. Finally, inhabitants of Marashah, which sound like the Hebrew word for conqueror, they shall be conquered. Agilum, like Gath, is a reference back to David and Saul. 1 Samuel 22, David flees into exile as Saul chased him, seeking his life. And he, David hid in a cave in Agilum. 
So both what Mike is saying is that like then, now the glory and the nobility of Israel shall be sent away into exile. So there we go. What's the point? What's Micah doing here? Well, perhaps besides highlighting his literary genius, we learn something about identity. Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. This is God's curse upon Adam after he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after God had commanded him not to. He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Michael's lament of the destruction of these Judean cities highlights the failure of our idolatrous identities to rescue us. The very names by which these towns were identified are called forth in the proclamation of judgment against them. So if we think about Adam in connection, Adam, the man from the dust, in his judgment learns that he is now resigned to the dust. So shall Beth Laafra, the town of dust. The beautiful town shall be stripped and sent out naked. The town that went out proudly shall stay put within her gates. The city that took away the threat of invading armies shall itself be taken away. The bitter city shall wait for a a better thing which will never come. The city of military might and power shall have to pay a dowry to the invading Assyrian army, which you can read about in 2 Kings 18. The deceitful practices of Judah's rulers shall be returned to them. The judgment shall fall on their heads, and like David was once sent into exile, so too shall his city be sent into exile. The inhabitants shall be cast away. So for us, the question is, how do you identify yourself? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What is the most important thing about you? Is it something actually about you? Some strength or some flaw? Or is it Christ? The problem each of these cities face ultimately isn't that their names happen to make for easy wordplay in the Hebrew language. The problem with them is that they trusted in the might and the power of man rather than God. And so where is our trust? Is it in ourselves? Is it in some political party? Is it some pastor Is it your spouse, your children? Is it in your job, your looks, your grades, your athletic ability, physical fitness? Is it in your dog? Or, help me here, your cat? Where's your hope? Where is your hope, Redeemer Baptist Church? I pray that for us, Our hope, unlike these fallen cities, would be in the Lord. And so we come finally then 
to the center, the heart of the kingdom of Judah, the city of Jerusalem. In verse 16. And this is what Micah says to Jerusalem. He says, make yourselves bald, cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as the eagle or vulture perhaps. For they shall go forth from you into exile. As I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this is likely a prophecy that uh, is not about the Assyrian invasion, but about the Babylonian exile, which would occur uh, maybe 140 years after, at least after Samaria falls. And, And so Micah warns, not of purely immediate consequences for sin, but he warns them of the dark and desperate days awaiting their children. And I think that is a very fitting word for us today. If you don't know, this Wednesday, January 22nd, is the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. It began in 1984 under President Ronald Reagan. January 22nd in 1973 was the day the Supreme Court handed down their opinion that states cannot pass any law ultimately protecting the life of the unborn. Mothers have a right, according to the highest court in our land, to murder their children for essentially any reason. Originally, many of the arguments from those in favor of abortion on demand was that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. But here's the kicker. Since 1973, there have been at least 60 million abortions performed in these United States of America. 60 million children have been brutally torn to pieces through surgical abortions or burned alive through medical abortions on our watch. Micah's word of judgment to Jerusalem, it seems, would have assumed that they cared about their children. He says, repent, otherwise your children shall have it worse than you. Now we know... They took Hezekiah's approach when he said, well, at least the judgment won't occur in my day. But perhaps there was the assumption that they cared about their children. But what could Micah say to America? What would our response be in the West? Micah, do you promise? On January 5th, of this year, the Golden Globes were broadcast from the Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills, California. It's a time for Hollywood celebrities to drool all over each other and lecture the rest of us about how to be righteous, moral, and upright human beings. Ordinarily, I don't find anything particularly interesting that comes out of such a charade, but there is one moment from that night that I'd like to mention now. Michelle Williams whom I had actually never heard of before, uh, won an award uh, for Best Actress in a Limited Series for Voss, Verdon. 
And she used her acceptance speech to call on women to vote. And here's what she said. When you, when you put this award in someone's hands, you're acknowledging the choices they make as an actor. Moment by moment, scene by scene, day by day. But you're also acknowledging the choices they make as a person. The education they pursued. The training they sought. The hours they put in. I'm grateful for the acknowledgement of the choices I've made. And I'm also grateful to have lived in a moment in our society where choices exist. Because as women and girls, things can happen to our bodies that are not our choice. I've tried my very best to live a life of my own making, and not just a series of events that happened to me, but one that I could stand back and look at and recognize my handwriting all over, sometimes messy and scrawling, sometimes careful and precise, but one that I had carved with my own hand. I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. What warning can you give to a nation who publicly and joyfully celebrates the murder of 60 million children so that we can make TV shows? Or so that we can fill in the blank? Will we go the way of Samaria? Will we go the way of Jerusalem? We must admit, America is not a theocratic nation being directly ruled by God as Israel was. But God did not only judge Israel. We, we mentioned it last week. Assyria fell. Babylon did too. The nations are a drop in the bucket Compared to the might of the Lord. America may be the most dominant, expansive, empire-building country in the history of the world. But does that threaten God? Not in the slightest. The blood of these children cries out to God from the toilets and the garbage cans where they have been dumped. And I pray that we would not sit idly by as children are sent into exile. But more than that, literally taken away to death. Efforts in recent years have shed much light on the grotesque and destructive nature of abortion. But there is much work yet to be done. And so let us together Brothers and sisters, love the least of these and protect them with all the resources we have at our disposal. Let us love the mothers and fathers who have been lied to, who have lied to themselves and have done so much harm to themselves and to these children. And as we love, in doing so, we mirror the love of Christ who gave Himself for us. As we think about loving not just the children in harm's way, but what about the mothers and fathers who have had and procured abortions? 
let me offer a word of hope. The promise of forgiveness is the same to you, mother, the same to you, father, as it is to anyone else. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I personally know some of you have done that very thing. And I want you to know that I am grateful for you. I am grateful for the the forgiveness of God that has been extended to sinners like me and like you. And if there's someone here who hasn't trusted in Christ, not simply for forgiveness from abortion, but forgiveness from any sin and every sin, once again, I offer him to you and encourage you to find true rest, true peace, and forgiveness in Christ that you cannot find anywhere else.